Sound is part of our everyday life experience, but it's hard to understand and define its meaning and workings. Sound can feel strange or unfamiliar when we try to put it into words. In this talk entitled Sounds Unreal, Professor Helen Abbott, a specialist in 19th century French poetry and music at Birmingham University, introduces us to various ways we might get a grasp on what sound is, especially through its relationship with voice and language. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during the Symposium of Sound conference, held in 2018. For copyright reasons, we are unable to include the music recordings themselves in this podcast. However, you can find Helen Abbott on Spotify at hm.abbott and listen to most of the tracks through her playlist entitled Sounds Unreal. So what is sound? And when is sound really sound? Because sound is usually conceived of technically as vibrating air, it has also been ripe for metaphorization in various ways. So sound is also an impression, a transmission, a resonance. It is notes, thought, speech, style. And the relationship between the technical attributes and creativity is captured, for example, very clearly by Edgar Allan Poe in his 1845 tale, The Power of Words, where mere impulses upon the air become the great medium of creation. By asking questions about sound, we're asking very fundamental but also fundamentally difficult questions. And when we stop to think about sound and to attempt to interrogate it, we may find that it's pretty unreal. Sound is unbelievable and deceptive as much as it is amazing and incredible. It's part of our everyday lives and it envelops us, but it remains elusive and hard to grasp. And as research in the humanities has turned its attention towards sound, we've unlocked disciplinary doors and re-evaluated our relationships with the various media that are part and parcel of our everyday lives and our research careers. We're still making discoveries about sound and we're finding more and more refined techniques for getting hold of what a sound is and what it does. But none of us could claim yet, I think, to enjoy a fulsome understanding about the way sound affects us. With that in mind, I want to attempt today to talk about, first of all, the experience of sound, secondly, how we talk about sound, and thirdly, how we can analyse sound before looking then at how we might pay attention to it. I'm going to unabashedly start from a very personal perspective, validated, I hope, by a phenomenological approach to first-person subjective experience of sound. Because my experience for the past three years has been particularly focused on the Baudelaire Song Project, I've been using this project as a kind of springboard to address much bigger questions about sounds, voices, songs, music, performance and listening, all the while acknowledging that the access point comes through a relationship with languages, and languages conceived of as sound systems as much as they are signifying systems. Sound, for me, then, is never far removed from voices and languages, even when they seem disembodied, non-human or mechanical, because one of the most important modes through which we receive and experience sound is through the words we have at our disposal to talk about them. So the examples and abstracts and extracts, sorry, you'll hear me play today, 
which are shared in their fuller form on a Spotify playlist in the case of published or released tracks, will be in French, German and Italian, those happen to be the three languages I speak, and by musicians and artists from America, Belgium, Britain, Finland, France, Italy and the Netherlands. I'm working towards allowing different access points to ways of analysing sound. And a large section of what I want to showcase today is a method for analysing multi-layered audio tracks which comprise different sound inputs. And in so doing, I hope to unfurl the delicate and fragile petals of sound that make up our everyday auditory experiences, but which we're sometimes unable to grasp in their entirety because of the overloaded demands on our attentional abilities. How we experience sound is coloured by the extent to which we perceive which sounds merit our attention and which do not. So here goes with part one, a phenomenology of sound. I'm daring to use that term, phenomenology, for now, because the idea of phenomenology captures that philosophical and ethical position which is deeply rooted in our understanding of the self and how it experiences complex sensory phenomena. When Don Idy published his major study in 1976, <clears throat> which has been reissued in 2007. It shifted attention in the humanities away from the dominance of the visual toward the auditory. And Aidy's work still remains important in the field because it builds on that kind of weight of European philosophy uh, from Husserl to Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty and Kierkegaard. And Aidy's analysis has helped unpack the apparent dichotomies that had existed between the call for attention to the word as soundful and the call to listen to sounds as meaningful. And by elucidating, as Idy does, the emerging role of modern technologies at various points in time on our experience of sound. Idy argues that a phenomenological approach helps us to question our initial assumptions about sound by breaking with the easy familiarity of experience. If we take Idy's work as a starting point and allow ourselves to use his phenomenological method to explore our own sound histories, it seems to take us through layers of meaning and interpretation, rather like, at least for me, the experience of reading a poem for the first time. Poems invite us to read more slowly and deeply. They deploy the sounds of language differently and proffer meanings that change and alter as we break with our first impressions and reach for, in Idy's terms, enriched significance to experience the poem in a more profound way. And a really important poem that invites us to listen and experience its sounds is Baudelaire's very famous poem, Correspondance, in which words and meanings may be confused and intermingled along with all the other senses, but as the last line suggests, everything sings. But how might we experience this poem phenomenologically? It will depend on our individual level of familiarity with it. I could tell you all to read it out loud now, to experience it in your mouth. And then I could tell you all to do the same thing but in another language. The experience will be different depending on what languages you are most familiar with. We might feel something more profound as we explore the language, as we change our level of fam familiarity with the text and how it sounds to us. We could further de- and re-familiarise the poem by hearing it through another's voice and ear. I can call up a whole playlist of professional actors and amateur readers performing the poem. There's a hell of a lot of them on YouTube. Some are accompanied by music and some are not. I can give you song settings of the poem in slam or ch chanson francaise and you can have a little listen to the Spotify playlist for a few choice examples. I don't necessarily like them all. But doing so 
redefines our attentional abilities as well as our aesthetic preferences. And crucially, it also seems to redefine how we do literature, how we do music, how we do linguistics, how we do performance and creative practice. Being surrounded by a very diverse ecosystem of sound is what characterises, I think, 21st century living and our aesthetic experiences today. We could see this as negative, as an auditory overload that is too much to deal with. So on the Baudelaire Song Project, we've got 1,330 songs. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Or we could see this as a huge positive, as an almost limitless access to sounds of all types and from all kinds of cultures and epochs. So I've learnt to listen to death metal settings of Baudelaire, despite that not being my first port of call when I wanted to listen to music. It means now that we have to rethink assumptions about what we're listening to and how we hear it. To explain a little more clearly what I mean, let me just give four examples of listening experiences from my own kind of recent sound history. They've actively called my assumptions about sound into question. So the first comes from the book I'm writing at the moment about Baudelaire and Debussy. And we're doing a chapter on the recording history of the songs that Debussy composed of Baudelaire's poems. So I found myself having to listen to a remastered scratchy vinyl record from the 1940s. The singer is Maggie Tate and the pianist is Gerald Moore. And they're performing Le Gédo, or The Fountain. Let's just have a little quick listen. So for me, on first hearing that track, I was a little bit puzzled about the way Maggie Tate attacks the note, sometimes with force, sometimes from just under the note. I was interested in her use of portamento, which to my modern ear sounds soupy, and the very uneven ensemble between the singer and the pianist, yet nonetheless being massively impressed because they did that in one take, whereas nowadays we can do it in many, they had no chance to edit. But I don't know if you had the same experience, but my overwhelming experience, the first time I heard it, was of the scratchy sound that for me sat right high up in the register of that recording. And it was so dominant in my ear because I was close listening through headphones. And I needed to listen again several more times to retune my ear and allow it to familiarise itself with the scratchy vinyl so I could access other aspects of the track. And the reason I was close listening to that track was because it's apparently the closest sound record of what Debussy himself might have heard when the song was performed. So I'm not going to go into that issue of original sounds and performance history, but it's something I had to interrogate. And knowing that certainly shaped my experience of the sounds as I started to listen to how the singer handled the vocal part. But also, this is a song I know really, really well. And the sound image I already held in my head of the song, my expectations and assumptions were being buffeted by rather different impulses on the airwaves. And one of the reasons I know this song extremely well is because I'd recently coached it on an album uh, with the duo Mary Bevan and uh, Joe Middleton, which got a Gramophone Awards nomination this year. My experience of the song in this context was quite different. I was involved in creating its sound world from the get-go. I was working with Mary on her French diction, and then I did a session, or three, together with Mary and Jo on their interpretation of the song. And we get something much more husky with Mary's voice. It's a different type of quality than Maggie Tate's. And I know that what we're hearing on this track is an edited version. I know how many takes they took. I was there in the freezing cold recording sessions in a church in North London. But despite the pristine editing 
of a top flight sound engineer and a producer team, we can still hear Mary's breath. She's not a disembodied voice. It's not that clear and crystal sound. And I think that's absolutely crucial to our experience of listening to the song in this instance. Have a quick listen to this. There's so many more things I could say, but the fact is I've heard at least 20 recordings of that same song, but none have kind of grabbed me or got to me quite as much as those two recordings have. There's something about my experience of those sounds created that captures my ear. And as someone who researches music, my relationship to this sound world is highly imbricated. I'm not neutral, and the way those sounds affect me are fairly unique and individual. Even if you can all hear similar things to what I hear, they will not have the same resonance. Now, by contrast, my second listening experience uh, was one in which I neither knew the music nor any of the performers. And I was very lucky to be able to attend a performance of Thomas Adders' latest opera, The Exterminating Angel, at the Royal Danish Opera in April this year. The opera is based on a 1960s surrealist film by Louis Buñuel, which had premiered just in 2016. I'd read some of the reviews, I'd read the synopsis, but I had no real idea what to expect from an opera that starts with live sheep on stage and offers an absolute whirlwind of sound, layering orchestral and vocal timbres, incessant rhythms, demonic lyricism, deploying a huge range of percussion with solo guitar and Hans Martineau on top of the usual orchestra and deploying a huge cast of singers. Its conception verges on the outlandish. And one of the particularly striking aspects of the opera is the demands made of the singer who performed the part of Letitia. Her role requires the singer to perform frequently at the very high extremes of her register. I'm talking of the A above the normal high A of the soprano uh, voice. So this was Swedish uh, coloratura soprano Kessner Vemo doing the, ro the role. And I found myself fixated on listening to her, in part because her voice stood out well above the chaotic and melodramatic hullabaloo that was going on amongst the rest of the orchestra and the cast. And it was in part also because I couldn't really comprehend what I was hearing. I kept on trying to work out what note it was she was singing and whether there were any words with it. They were singing uh, in English, but uh, it wasn't necessarily obvious because they had Danish surtitles. But I was also trying to imagine how it was possible to make that sound, so, which was so high-pitched and so screechy and yet so compellingly beautiful. Now, I'm not able to play you a clip of The Exterminating Angel because it's not yet been recorded, or if it has, it's not yet been released. But so fascinated was I with Avema's voice that I wanted to find out more. And if you listen to the Spotify playlist, you'll see that I found her on another contemporary opera, this time from 2005, by the Belgian composer Philippe Beusmans uh, in Julie. This opera has a much more pared-down orchestra and a cast of only three singers, so I can hear Avema's voice much more audibly because it's got less to cut through. It's been used also more as a pendant to the instruments in conversation and consort with interesting uses like the flutter-tongue flutes and very high strings, for example. And she's definitely doing vocalises in this opera, which are not quite as extreme as in the Ades opera. But the clarity and the sparkle of her voice had something for me that captivated. And I'll encourage you to listen to the Julie track, but because it's nine minutes long, I'm not going to play it now. Now, of course, my listening experience of Avemo on the uh, Spotify audio track is not the same as being in uh, an opera house. Because I can listen to a recording, her voice is very present in the soundtrack, experienced much more closely than if I were in the auditorium itself. And we know, for example, that Michel Chion has written extensively about 
that relationship between the close and the distant voices, particularly in relationship to theatre voices and cinema voices. Or Nina Eidsheim, who's written a very illuminating discussion about how our experiences of concert halls have a normatising function for how we perceive sound. But in any sound experience, we are always tuning in to certain aspects more closely than others. Other listeners will pay more attention to different parameters and features of the sound signal than I will. And that's precisely why we're able to talk about a phenomenology of sound. Not that my subjective listening experience is more relevant than another person's, but there are varieties of subjective listening experiences which mean we hear and interpret sounds differently depending on our prior knowledge, our expectations, our assumptions and our preferences. And how we pay attention, as Yves Citon has clearly argued, depends on the way our streams of attention are individuating. So that's not individual, but it's individuating. And when then it disrupted, we suddenly find ourselves paying more attention. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, uh, I'm going to be very egotistical and give you an example uh, from when I got recorded unexpectedly for Radio 3. Tom Service was up at the Royal Northern College of Music where I was running a masterclass on Debussy. Uh, uh, he recorded it unbeknownst to me. I hadn't signed any forms, but, you know, anyway, <coughs> he recorded me. Uh, and then he said, oh, can I just do a quick interview with you in the break? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And there we were, quite different to any of the experiences I'd had before. We weren't in a, a pristine studio. Uh, we were in a noisy, bustling foyer of the Royal Northern and their program aired just a day or two later. Now it wasn't the fact itself of hearing myself on the radio that particularly struck me. It was the fact that I was doing so in the context of a research project that I'm developing where I'm acutely tuned in to thinking about how voices function as sound and our individuating perceptions of those sounds. So someone like Stephen Connor has argued, for example, in Dumbstruck, that the popularisation of the tape recorder in the 60s made familiar the unfamiliarity of one's own voice as heard by others. And more recently, he's noted how people are often shocked to hear a recording of their own voice because the sound image we cultivate of our own voice is never quite what others hear. My own experience of hearing my voice coming back to me through a recording has been very much coloured by what is fundamentally a set of cultural habits, which suggests that you should not like the sound of your own voice when we hear them coming back to you. And yet, as Connor also argues, once people get used to hearing their own recorded voice, that voice recording equipment can become a kind of sound reflection. And we could just think about all the Instagram live videos or Facebook live videos that people very willingly do, generally not me. But with smartphones in our pockets, Recording technologies at our fingertips, I've got one in my pocket right now, and multiple ch channels for disseminating our recorded sounds. There is less of a barrier to familiarity, and our expectations are changing. So too are our experience of the sounds of our own voices. So my voice sometimes sounds different to me, doesn't always come back to me the way I expect it to, and so my assumptions about sound and the sound of my own voice are forever challenged. My voice often sounds unreal, but that itself is completely normal. And so that leads me deftly onto my fourth listening experience, one where no one is necessarily singing or speaking, but in which a voice is intimately involved in the sound. About 20 years ago, I was walking down a quiet residential street when suddenly there came a tapping, as uh, Edgar Allan Poe would have it, and I stopped to listen in the street, and it took me a, quite a while to realise that it was somebody using an old-fashioned typewriter in one of the houses along the street. 
the sound was defamiliarising. This was the 21st century, just. And there aren't many typewriters about these days. The sound struck me because it had taken me so long to pass, but it also filled me with nostalgia, despite the fact that I've only ever grown up with computer keyboards and never a typewriter. Mm -hmm. So it implies a certain romanticisation of sounds from the past that are no longer part of our auditory spectrum, coloured by our assumptions about what such sounds should sound like. Such sounds become metaphorised and redeployed as unreal figurations. For example, Alicia Keys' song, Typewriter, personifies the machine, casting it as an embodied other which she's able to tap into. The typewriter is also captured in the soundtrack through the dotted rhythms of the snare that underpin the track. Clearly, this is not a recording of a typewriter. And it would be a very strange typist indeed who typed only in those dotted rhythms. But it evokes that sound and it plays with it and repurposes the sound, now defamiliarised for a rather newer soundscape in which we have multi-layered sounds and voices. When our normal patterns of attention are disrupted, we find ourselves paying more attention. And the way we attend to sound merits, I think, a deeper consideration because of what sound is. It's multiple, it's messy and always mixed because our real lived experiences of sound, our own phenomenologies of sound, mean that it is always complex. And as a result, as I think we just discussed a lot today, it seems that all too often the vocabulary and the analytical tools that we have at our disposal do not always yet enable us to do a good job of parsing and interpreting those sounds effectively. So, for example, Brandon LaBelle has suggested that sound is both alienating and intimate, sitting between two acoustic polarities. It's our experience and only ours, and yet it is also absolutely other. Taking my cue from LaBelle, I'm going to move on to explore now in part two what I'm calling a brief lexicon of sound, using just two more examples, before then turning on to part three, in which I'll show a method <coughs> for analysing sound, which allows us to shift and adapt our mode of attention to unfurl more layers of sound. So, what do people write about when they write about sound? Well, it's voice and noise, it's music and song, both real, imagined and remembered. And the vocabularies deployed often show a mixing between sounded features that are otherwise considered as separate. A non-animate sound is made to sing or play the violin as if it went out with musical skill. Voices which are patently silent are made to be noisy and clattery and so forth. And that collapsing of category labels is absolutely commonplace in all kinds of discourses which talk about sound. And to illustrate what I mean, I've just picked out two compelling examples, which are of their time, but I think resonate very strongly even still today. They're both of poetry. First of all, let's just have a quick look at a run of very noisy stanzas from the romantic poet Théophile Gautier's poem, Le Sommet de la Tour, The Top of the Tower. These stanzas form the central nub of a poem in which Gautier builds up an array of sound descriptions so shown here in bold and with keywords translated into English to get a quick digest. We've got buzzing and ringing and striking and hammering and singing. And these noise stanzas culminate in the phrase which claims that every object makes its own note which is impossible to grasp. There seems to be a contradiction here. The poem is full of noises, 
of bells and of virgins, of cannons and of water, of pleasure and of pain, suggesting that the very act of living out our lives means being part of a colossal orchestra. And yet the notes that emerge from the orchestra of life somehow remain otherworldly. How is it that the sounds can be so everyday and yet so removed from the everyday? Gautier, I think, is grappling with that kind of alienating and familiarising of the acoustic polarities which compete for our attention. Within the specifics of a mid-19th century romantic set of sound experiences, Gautier is basically grappling with the universal challenge of notating sound, of writing it down. The words themselves sound, but the sounds remain unreal. Now, Daniel Albright has suggested that poets have always been listening, and it's as if poets, I don't know why it's just poets, but I think he's right, were always trying to translate into human language, something that pre-exists in the whole body of the world's sounds. It's like the mega challenge of every poet. The world's sounds are so all-encompassing and yet so essential. Sounds run through us like breath, like air, but when we try to single them out to encapsulate them, they elude us. In Gautier's poem, the poet is trying to transcend the common metaphors of sound to question what poetry is really doing as it creates sound. And as someone like Daniel Carlin has suggested, while poets might accept the metaphorical identification of their art with song and of themselves as singers, they don't do so without question or challenge. And generations of poets have continued to grapple with the same issue. It strikes at the heart of our human language and how we can form it into a sounded shape which captures other sounds outside of it. And if poets, as consummate artists working with language at the extremes of its sound capabilities, are trying to translate somehow the whole of the world's sounds, can they ever really succeed? Or is another operation beyond that required instead? So my second example, uh, comes from an early 20th century Italian poet, uh, where the vocabulary of sound seems to capture a, something very mundane. It's the noise of a tram racing through the streets of an American city. And in this poem by Dino Campana, the poet strives to hurtle along with it, both in the description he gives of himself within the poem and in the poetic form he's selected, which is prose poetic but syntax and punctuation light. Words are starting to jumble up against one another in a hurry, so in the second half of it we get trembles, fades, uh, picks up again, intensifies, free. The poet in this extract is most definitely listening attentively, hearing music in the screech of the tram, though it's not necessarily a pleasant music. And when poems contain references to musical sounds alongside their own internal sound structures, it's often very tempting as readers to use that as an impetus to imagine what that music might sound like. So composers and readers might translate the poet's own translation of a musicalised sound. And in the case of this poem, it was the Dutch composer Louis Andreessen who opted to set this poem to music some 85 years after the poem had been published. In Andreessen's setting, we're introduced to a soundscape that does not, in fact, necessarily translate the tram. Where Campana had metaphorised the sound of the tram into that of an electrified violin, Andreasen literally gives us the electrified violin. It's, it's uh, electrically amplified. So let's just hear a little bit of this. I hope you could hear that violin underneath niggling away the whole time. So Andreasen gives us 
this kind of intensive rhythmical periodicity and goes on to intensify the text by doubling the soprano jazz voice with the electrified solo violin. But making this sound is absolutely multi-layered and multi-voiced. While Andreasen's interpretation of Campana's sound might seem reductive on the one hand, it also completely blows the poem's soundscape wide open, beyond the individuating aspects that the poem itself had sought to capture. The sounds are both personal and universal. This suggests that the lexicon of sound always has to be multivalent, and this in turn confirms that when we analyse sound, we should be attentive to how it operates across different signifying systems. So what I hope I've managed to show so far is that the first-person perspective of phenomenological thinking enables us to resist simply taking language about sound at face value and to interrogate a much deeper and denser set of sound phenomena. Now, in the context of the research that I do, it means examining a very full range of sounds or sound-related phenomena, exploring how they might structure experiences of song. And using a much fuller perspective encourages us to revisit the potentially reductive assumptions, which might see something like a song as a basic or flat product, such as a score, a track, or a piece. So the challenge is to find a way to pay attention to each of the phenomena which comprise a song, for example, since those phenomena inevitably compete for our attention. So in the Baudelaire Song Project, we've developed what we might call a thick method, which explores four different stages of analysis using the combined artifacts which in our case are a poem and its music, and they're different material forms. It might be a notated score, it might be an audio recording on various paratexts. First of all, we attempt a schematic analysis, which is a quick glance comparator template. We then look at statistical analysis of the score and various parameters. We might look at the meter, the form, the sound properties, the semantics, and some performance options, which builds a much bigger comparative data set of raw inter and interpreted figures. We then use a tool called Sonic Visualizer to analyze the recordings, which can give both real and normalized time in comparative data. And then we also do some comparative analysis, uh, which provides words around the numerical data. So this approach affords us access to all different kinds of song phenomena. And what it has enabled us to do is to listen more attentively to the sound worlds created. So allow me to give you just a couple more examples. The first comes from uh, a set of songs that were composed by the emerging French ca uh, composer Nicolas Chevreau. He's actually written five songs which completed in 2016 and published by Edition de la Tour the following year. And these songs are fairly unique in our corpus of the Baudelaire Song Project because we have an almost total or complete access to every possible bit of material we might possibly want to do each of the analysis stages. We've got scores, recordings, orchestrations, and we've had them even before they were published or released. We've had interviews with the composer both in person and via online exchange. We've attended premieres and we've met various performers who've done the set. Now, we're still analysing the set as we speak, but I can give you a good flavour of what I mean if we just have a quick glance at the first song in the set called Cloudy Sky. So a schematic analysis in the dark blue box at the top uh, 
shows the musical framework in relation, relation to text-setting decisions. It gives us a, a fair idea of the structural compatibility established between the text and the music, and some specific sound decisions, such as tonality here, which is a bit uh, unstable. And then our statistical analysis, and I've just given you a run of figures there, looks a bit more deeply at the implications between the text and music, showing, showing some surprising results. There are very few extra notes or syllables in this setting, and some which are very much in line with what other composers do for melody. So there's very little uh, direct semantic response in the music, for example. Then, our use of Sonic Visualizer enables us to look at the song through a visualized version of the stereo track. Instead of just seeing the notes on the page, or hearing the invisible sound materialised at the concert, we can look, for example, at the attack of the piano notes visualised on the screen. And we can get, therefore, different versions of the representations of the sound, hearing and seeing that attack and decay. Let's just have a quick listen to the opening. And even though I, weren't, I wasn't doing that in kind of real karaoke style, I think you could all visually see where each of those notes came in. There's a nicely sparse opening. When the voice comes in, a bit more messy, and I don't think you can see that very clearly in this light, but I can annotate a whole bunch of their pink lines, if you can see them on that screen, uh, where I can uh, just mark where every single syllable occurs. And what that enables me to do is see the density of the vocal line and how it permeates the song. And that will look very different in normalised time from how it sounds in real time. And that's because isolating the vocal line is not always possible, as it is in the score. So experiencing the song through Sonic Visualizer makes us hear it as a combined signal. Contextual analysis then enables us to flesh out in a little bit more detail what the composition and the performance are doing. From the audio tracks and the scores, we can observe in our various statistical analyses that there was no repetition of the poetic text. And that's fairly uncommon in the song repertoire. Music is so dependent on repetition that composers tend to repeat a segment or a word of the text. But the composer, uh, when we interviewed him, said it was an absolute point of honour. He did not want to repeat it. And then when we attended the premiere in Paris, we also got a very different kind of insight because we'd been given permission to record the performance for research purposes. Now, the audio analyses I've just played up until now on Sonic Visualizer used the studio album, which was recorded last year, not yet released. But because we have all of this material, uh, it meant as a team we could go back and use the comparators of the live performance and uh, the studio recording. And it encouraged us to listen attentively and get us to listen again and again. And I had not realised, until I was forced to listen again to the live recording, that my critical interpretation of the song had always been to call it a little bit eerie, a little bit mysterious. And there are plenty of features of the musical soundscape that definitely suggest that for us. The fact that it doesn't lodge itself in a core tonality, despite there being some kind of pedal note, the piano opening is fairly sparse. But there was something I suddenly noticed when listening to the live recording again, headphones in, intent on examining the difference between the performances. And I suddenly noticed something I'd never remarked before, and I hope you can hear it. So it was the creaky door of someone sneaking in. It's a little bit late after the concert had started. <clears throat> Quick nod to Enya here. But 
what I hadn't realised is I had associated that kind of horror movie creepy sound. And it had not been enough to disrupt my attention uh, when I'd listened to that track a few times. I was like, oh, it's a live recording. Of course there's background noises. But when I was intent then on analysing the song, its presence in the auditory field suddenly coloured my judgement in a different way. And realising this jolted me into a new way of listening for our analysis. And it made me and the team much more alert to our assumptions and expectations and how they were intensifying or inflecting or infecting our analysis. So fundamentally, using this thick method has forced us very much to open our ears. And a good example of how paying attention to how we attend to sound as we analyse the songs is now a track from uh, 2014 by a Finnish band called Omphalos Renaissance. I don't speak Finnish or uh, it's a bit of fun. There's no liner notes. It's a digital album release. There's very little Wikipedia information and what there is. It's in Finnish. Uh, we're using our Finnish contacts at the moment to just try and secure an interview with the lead singer, Mika Reto, however you pronounce that. But we're nonetheless able to use our analysis skills to examine what's going on in the track. What's particularly challenging in this track is that the French poem is, in fact, completely mangled. The prosody is completely wayward, and Reto provides his finest Finnish accent to turn J's into Z's, S's into SH's, soft C's into hard C's, and so forth. And we might once have been tempted to laugh at this. We've talked about these kind of experiences before. But as a team, we're, we're very alert now to resisting that response because, in fact, we've got such a substantial number of songs in our data set by non-French-speaking artists performing in French that it's forcing us to listen to these settings more dif uh, rather differently. What a track like this does for us is to fundamentally re-sound the text in ways which completely defamiliarise de it for us. For those of us who are well-versed in Baudelaire studies, there's one or two in the room, the poem selected by Omphalos Renaissance to a woman passing by is so famous. It's been subjected to so many impressive critical analyses that most of us can not only recite this poem off by heart, but we can also offer three or four well-resourced critical lenses on it. But in fact, it's the defamiliarization of the text and its sounds, which now helps us to find new angles this is a poem which, in fact, resolutely deals with sound. The very opening li line talks about the deafening sound of the city street. And Omphalos Renaissance's song setting stops us from only paying attention to the aspects we might habitually pay attention to. It invites us to listen in and to spend a lot more time with the track. Instead, it's the richness of the sound of language pronounced very differently that makes us hear the poem as sound rather than about sound. And if you'll allow me to play most of this track, I'd invite you to listen or to tune into different aspects of the sounds. Ignore the text per se, just listen to the phonemes, <coughs> listen to the piano, focus on the voice's qualities, listen out for the repetition. Because in this song, the comprehensibility of the poem text is absolutely not the primary mode of hearing the song. I'd love to carry on playing more. Uh, you can listen again on Spotify. So much we could talk about, and we will at another moment. If what I have mostly examined today are, if you like, the reveal or the surprise moments of experiences of sound, that's because, as I suggested at the outset, we're still coming to terms with what sound is and how it operates. The existing lexicon of sound all too often privileges certain ways of listening, 
And as I come towards my conclusion today, I want to revisit the idea that in highly mediatised cultures, the competing demands made of our attention, in fact, enable us to double up our attentional skills rather than letting ourselves be overwhelmed. For Yves Citon, we are engaged fundamentally in an oscillation between immersion and critique, which means, for example, that we are able to absorb ourselves in music while also retaining some critical awareness of the fact that we're inhabiting the real world around us. And we're capable of adjusting our attention, but we need to be alert to how much we're affected by what surrounds us. The ecosystem of sound and of how we attend to it can be changed not necessarily by shifts in how we listen, but in how we modify the environment in which we listen. For researchers of sound, that means a commitment to a deep and thick engagement with sounded cultures, for which the phenomenological approach may have particular relevance. And as we develop our research and expertise in this multidisciplinary field of what many now identify as sound studies, let's not forget that this development in sounded cultures and technologies of sound enables us to modify our research habits alongside our existing cultural apparatus. When Evelyn Glennie, for example, makes a case in her 2003 TED talk for teaching the world to listen as someone who does so as a non-hearing musician, she's not just making a play for better inclusivity and opportunities for musicians of different abilities, but she's inviting us to reconsider how we normativize sound through how we talk about it. New technologies for creating, capturing and analysing sound continue to expand our field of understanding about sound, in which the text and the sound interface becomes much more porous. When we hear a sound, we might also hear language within it. When we hear language, we might hear it as sound. It's not just that words are soundful or that sounds are wordful, but that our mediatised and technolog technologically enabled experiences are expanding our attentional abilities. By making all sounds unreal, we are challenging assumptions, revisiting habitual norms, and uncovering much vaster sonorous riches than we might ever have thought possible. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.